wake up. It's a Sleep Unplugged podcast, episode 77. Sleep trackers seemed like the real thing. Welcome everyone to this very long overdue episode of the Sleep Unplugged podcast. My name is Chris Winter. I'm a neurologist and sleep specialist and your host for what should be a very good, informative, and like I said, long overdue episode of the podcast. If you're new to the podcast, welcome to the rapidly growing family of Sleep Unplugged listeners. If you are a veteran of the podcast, welcome back. We're glad you're here. I'm sorry it's taken so long to do the Sleep Tracker episode. You know, it was interesting. I was talking to my producer, Maeve, about last week's episode and just kind of debriefing. She's very good at saying, hey, Chris, I think you're, or hey, dad, your, your podcast went too long or it was tight. It was good. It was all over the place. And she said, I really liked last week's episode of the podcast. What are you doing this week? And I said, I think it's time for the Sleep Tracker episode. And she said, thank God. She said, when I tell people that I produce your Sleep Unplugged podcast about all things related to sleep, the most common question I get is, what sleep tracker does your dad recommend? So we're going to get into all of it today. If you want to communicate with the show, talk about your sleep tracking experience, what devices you've used over the years, because they've been around for a long time. You can reach us at DR Chris Winter. That's Twitter, DR Chris Winter, Instagram, DR Chris Winter, TikTok, Blue Sky Threads. We have a Sleep Unplugged YouTube page that you can communicate to the show with the show via that portal as our listener Bianca did today, which I'll get to in just a minute. So lots of ways you can communicate with the show, give corrections, comments, criticisms, Whatever, whatever you would like to talk about, uh, suggestions for future topics, we we accept it all and love hearing from each and every one of you. And I really appreciate any reviews of the podcast that you can leave. I, they're they're exceptionally important to me, and and really appreciate those as well too. So we always start the show off comments, corrections, criticisms. We had a correction sent in by Blake this week that said, "Hey." I think the lyric that you referred to in episode 75 was actually a U2 lyric, not a Coldplay lyric. And what he's referring to is bittersweet, I could taste in my mouth is actually the line from a Coldplay song, The Hardest Part, which is what I said in the podcast. I think what Blake is thinking about is the lyric, sweet the sin, bitter the taste in my mouth, which is a line from U2's song, uh, running to Stand Still, which closed out their Joshua Tree album and might be the best final song ever on an album. If you've got a better suggestion for the last song of an album being better than that one, especially in the context of Joshua Tree, let me know. So Blake, I appreciate you interacting with the show and throwing that out there, but I think you've got those two lines mixed up, but it's kind of interesting. They're pretty easy to mix up, it seems. Uh, Bianca wrote into the show and she wrote in about our Catathrini episode, which is way, way back earlier in the show, which at last check on our YouTube page had over 3,500 downloads, which I think is a hundred times more, um, I'm sorry, it's 10 times more than the second place video, which is just incredible to me. But anyway, Bianca wrote, I hum and it gets so loud. And happens more often now that I'm pregnant and dealing with a toxic in-law. It gets so loud for my husband, he can't sleep and doesn't, and, and I can't control it. I'm having such a hard time with it. And I have since I was 10 years old. Uh, and she tried self-soothing things. It comes and goes. 
and just really appreciated the video that we posted in our podcast episode on catathrenia. That was the one we, the lyric was Moni Moni. So, um, and Bianca, thanks for listening to the show. I'm glad you found the video helpful. I'm glad so many of you found the video helpful. It's success of that particular podcast episode and video is still astounding to me. And Bianca hits on a bunch of things that are important. Stress can exacerbate it, you know, toxic in-laws staying with you for the holidays, pregnancy can all can cause all kinds of problems with your sleep. It does tend to come and go. She seems to have no power over it and maybe even no recollection of it. And as somebody who has catathrenia from time to time myself, that's exactly the way it works. When I'm stressed out, sleeping in a weird environment, you know, it drives my wife crazy. I have no way to control it um, besides just leave the room and hope tomorrow's better. So thank you very much, Bianca. Appreciate that. So for our music today on sleep trackers, I wanted a good lyric and there were a lot of potentials. Won't get fooled again by the who. Some people have way too much confidence from Origin of the Species, you too. One of these days, you're going to get it right. Uh, there's so many ways we could have gone with the 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 lyric, and I, I thought that seemed like the real thing would be best, just because I think that it encompasses a lot of things that we talk about when it comes to sleep trackers. So, and that's of course from Blondie's Heart of Glass. That was her fourth single off her third album, Parallel Lines. Parallel Lines was the album that really put Blondie on the map. It's got an iconic cover that I love. All the guys are dressed in suits and she's in this white little short dress. Everybody else is smiling and she's kind of got this different look on her face. Everybody hated the cover of the album except their producer, Mike Chapman, I think, who's the one who said, yeah, we're going to go forward with it. And it's sort of it's sort of an emblem of the fact that the group really just did never got along with each other um, outside of uh, Debbie Harry, the lead singer, and Chris Stein, uh, who were kind of romantically related. And they, they seemed to kind of dive. Um, so they had worked with a different producer. I don't remember his name, but I remember the producer for Parallel Lines was Mark Chapman. He had all these great ideas, including Heart of Glass. Brought them in. Debbie Harry disliked him immediately. Uh, Mark Chapman was famous. Mike Chapman was famous for saying, this is the most dysfunctional band I've ever worked with. And the band that was sort of the least talented in terms of playing their instruments. In fact, at one point, he was so particular about redoing things when they would make mistakes that their bassist, um, Nigel Harrison, threw a synthesizer at Mike Chapman. The album was recorded at Record Plant in New York City, where Rumors was recorded, Appetite for Destruction, Hotel California. So it was a really, really massive endeavor and, and came from a really iconic studio. And this was a very divisive song within the group. The drummer, uh, Clem, uh, Clem Burke, I believe is his last name, hated it um, and refused to play it until it got really popular. But it really was the song that was the international, global hit that really sort of put them on the map and i remember there was a reviewer who wrote about you know okay so this iconic new york punk band is recording a disco single and basically his comment was debbie harry can sing anything and make it cool and awesome and his quotation was there's the always luminous debbie harry who could give boiling asparagus an erotic charge, 
all while looking too bored to live. And if you've listened to the last couple episodes, we've mentioned randomly the Palladium, which was the old opera house in New York City, because we've I've been watching uh, the Gilded Age and really fascinated by this. And Debbie Harry and Blondie played the Palladium November 12th, 1978. They played 24 songs. Heart of Glass was the 17th song on the set. And their encore was Sister Midnight by Iggy Pop, Heroes by David Bowie. See, we relate every song on the show back to David Bowie and Get It On by T-Rex. So here's to Blondie, here's to Heart of Glass, and here's Sleep Technology. So Sleep Tech has been around for a while. When I first got interested and involved in sleep, certainly there was the polysomnographic equipment, which was big and massive and expensive and full of messy ink and paper that went all over the place, devices that were as big as a massive coat closet. And this is what we were using to record the different parameters of sleep. And mainly when we talk about recording sleep, we're talking about recording brain activity with EEG, you know, wires taped to your scalp. We're talking about eye activity. What are your eyes doing? It's often referred to as EOG, electric uh, um, oclogram. So we're, we're talking about the eye movements. Um, and then we're also talking about muscle tone, EMG. And so if you've got brain activity, muscle tone, and what the eyes are doing, we can measure pretty accurately whether somebody is asleep or not and what stage of sleep they're in. And so as we start to dive into sleep tech, consumer sleep monitoring, one of the more interesting criticisms I hear about sleep tech is, well, this is not the gold standard for measuring sleep. At best, sleep technology, sleep trackers are using surrogates for measuring sleep, which is a really interesting thing to think about. Okay, they're using surrogates, meaning, okay, you're wearing this device on your wrist and it's measuring heart rate variability. Maybe it's measuring body movement and pulse oximetry. So it's measuring three parameters. I think most people understand when somebody says, well, that's not really measuring sleep. It's measuring surrogates for sleep. When your heart rate variability does X, that might indicate that a person's asleep. When your pulse oximetry is doing Y, it might indicate you're in deeper sleep, not light sleep, you know, whatever. But when we, and, and there's, that's usually followed by, well, these are just surrogates for sleep. They are not at the level of the gold standard, which is the polysomnogram. So let's think about the polysomnogram. The polysomnogram is the fancy word for sleep study. So you're going to go to a sleep center and have a sleep study done. What happens? You get there, you meet the tech. He or she is lovely. They move you into the room and they start getting you hooked up for the test. And they're hooking up little wires to your to your scalp to measure your EEG or brain activity. What does the electrical activity of your brain look like? They're putting little device, little little leads near your eyes to measure eye activity. One on your chin to measure, measure muscle activity. We've got bands across your chest to measure your breathing. A little pulse oximeter on your finger to measure your pulse. So we're measuring lots of different things. So that's where the term polysomnography comes from. Poly meaning many, som sleep graph measure polys mini sleep measurements. I would argue that none of those measurements by themselves measure sleep. I think you could argue that measuring all of them don't measure sleep. 
each one is in itself a surrogate. So if I have a pulse oximeter on my finger, you might be able to make some guesses as to whether or not somebody's asleep or awake based upon what that pulse oximeter is doing, but it would be difficult. But if you add in breathing, and I can see the rate that you're breathing, the consistency you're breathing. Now I've added in muscle tone. Now I've added in your eye movements. Now I've added in brain activity. With each measurement, I'm not necessarily measuring sleep, but I'm getting measurements that are getting me closer and closer to this idea of what it means when somebody's asleep in deep sleep and light sleep. So I just think we have to be very careful with that because by definition, the whole thing is based upon convention. So when we say consumer sleep tech is not that great because it's a surrogate, well, all of it's a surrogate. And at some point, there's going to be just as many surrogates in your watch as there are in my sleep lab. And at that point, I'm not sure we can continue to say, well, it's not as good because now that watch that you're wearing and the little stickers that come with it I'm making this product up that you stick on your forehead and around your eyes are measuring all the things we measure in the lab. And just to give a sense of that, think about a pulse oximeter. When I was first doing sleep studies, the pulse oximeter situation was big. It was a big, expensive, heavy device that nobody had personal ones. It was all research kinds of things. Nelcor, I'll never forget who made the pulse, pulse, pulse oximeter. And my research mentor would always say, be careful with it. It's very expensive. And now they're a dime a dozen. Now they're in your watch or they're in your consumer sleep tech, which is fascinating. And, and when you think, let's extrapolate forward. Do, do I think that what's going on in a sleep lab is not going to be able to be reproduced in a way that consumers can use it? Of course I do. In fact, we're getting closer and closer to that point all the time, which if you own a sleep lab should make you sort of worried because very quickly, these devices are going to do just exactly what is done in a polysomnogram, if not better. Now, there's some differences. Look, your, your sleep tech is your, that you're wearing is not being monitored by a real person. But with the advent of AI and all, I mean, I just think that we're fools if we think this this technology is not going to be incredible 10 years from now because it's already pretty incredible. So when we think about the, the surrogates, I always think about blind, you know, blind, a group of blind individuals studying an animal. And one of the blind individuals has his hands on the animal and says, the animal feels rough. That doesn't tell you too much. Again, that's the pulse oximeter, right? I'm just making a, you know one device. But if we get another individual in the situation, again, you can't see, who's got his hands on the front of the, uh, the, the animal, he might say, wow, this animal seems to have a pretty long snout or nose. Ooh, okay, big animal with a long snout. I mean, it could be an elephant. That's that's the first thing that comes to. So it's two two pieces of data, I've already come to the conclusion of elephant. When I add the third guy who's feeling around at the back of the head and says, well, this, this animal has massive flappy ears. Oh, okay. Now I'm even more certain that what we're talking about is an elephant. And so to me, as we add more and more technology 
into a ring or a watch or a device that fits underneath your mattress, we get closer and closer to this theoretical measurement of sleep, whatever that is. Because we don't really measure sleep. We measure a lot of things that combine to what we understand as our definition of sleep. And I think that's that's a really important distinction to make that a lot of people sometimes sometimes miss. So the early days of tech were not consumer tech. It was all research tech. And I remember doing actigraphy research with a device. And man, I do not remember the name of the device. I thought it was the original Philips ActiWatch, but I'm thinking I might be wrong. But for those diehard sleep people out there who know more than I do, it was a little actigraphy device that measured movement. And I remember the ad in sleep journals for it. And it was made to look like a watch, even though it didn't function as a watch. And I believe it was sort of set to be permanently at three o'clock. So when you walked around with it, it looked like a wristwatch set at three o'clock. It was kind of camouflage meant to fool you into thinking that it wasn't a research device. But we would put that on individuals and it would measure movement. And so when you got the data back, you could see when the individual was moving around and when the individual was not moving around. And if you saw a several hour period of non-movement happening around 11 o'clock to 6 a.m., we assumed, okay, that's the individual sleeping. And we still use actigraphy a lot today. We would use it more if insurance is paid for it, frankly, which they don't. So a lot of places don't, there's no value in it. I, you know, I could say, look, I want you to wear this actigraphy device for the next two weeks. I'm going to sit down with you, read over the data, interpret it, but I can't, I can't bill for that, even though it's extremely valuable information, but it's not perfect information because I know what you're thinking. Hey, well, what if the person woke up at three o'clock in the morning and just sat there? Right. It would it would tend to fool the device into thinking that individual was actually asleep. So what this what actigraphy really did was give people a general sense of sleep and sleep schedules, which was helpful for research. And if a person was truly motionless for eight hours on Monday and eight hours on Tuesday and eight hours on Wednesday, we could pretty confidently assume they were sleeping the majority of that time. Could they have woken up at three o'clock in the morning and not at all move that arm that the actigraphy device was on? Certainly. But who does that? Do you know what I mean? I always patients come back and they're like, yeah, my, my sleep tracker doesn't work. I don't sleep at all, but this thing says I'm sleeping five, six, seven hours a night. What do you think's happening? Well, I wake up. I think it's just because I'm not moving during those seven hours that it thinks I'm asleep. Seven hours? You wake up in the night and you're holding your wrist watch arm completely motionless for seven hours while you do what just sit there no come on so you know these devices sure there is an interpretiveness to these things but for the most part they do a pretty good job of discerning sleep from wake and there's some research that really shows that it was basically um you know, the 2019 study out of the University of Texas said accuracy of wristband. This was a Fitbit model assessing sleep. And they said basically sleep staging Fitbit models showed promising performance, especially in differentiating wake from sleep. However, 
Although these models are a convenient and economical means for consumers to obtain gross estimates of sleep parameters and time spent in sleep stages, they are not limited specifically. They have limited, they have limited specificity, and that's important. We'll get back to that, and are not a substitute for a polysomnogram. And they always have to put that disclaimer in there, otherwise, you know, sleep doctors will find you and you'll end up in somebody you know, sleep doctor's trunk one day. You know? So, and there was a study out of 20 uh, in 2019 from the uh, journal clinical sleep medicine said validation of a consumer sleep wearable device with actigraphy and polysomnography, polysomnography in adolescents, adolescents across sleep opportunity manipulation. And what they they concluded was a consumer grade wearable device can measure sleep duration as well as a research actigraph. However, sleep staging would benefit from further refinement. So what they're saying is if you're wearing a sleep device that's not really, really old, it's probably doing a pretty good job of discerning whether you, as you are asleep and whether you're awake. And that's important. I think it's important in two different directions. A patient comes to me and says, I can't sleep. Okay, well, does that make sense to you? Because if you're a human, you have to sleep. If you listen to this podcast, we talk about this all the time. If the patient's like, well, yeah, I get that. Yeah, I guess maybe I do sleep. Then we have no we have no need. But if we can't come to some sort of agreement, well, I hear what you're saying, Chris, but I don't know. I, I don't think I sleep, which happens a lot. These things can be extremely helpful. It's not about, see, I told you. It's about comfort. It's about dialing back the anxiety. I just had a conversation with a guy recently about this, and this has been really helpful to him. Didn't feel like he was sleeping more than about an hour. Felt like he needed pills to sleep. As we've worked through this cognitively, seeing that number on his device is helpful. Doesn't care about how much deep sleep, dream sleep, quality of sleep. We're not worried about that. Just a number. And you're right, Chris. Yeah, this is basically telling me most nights I'm getting five, six, seven hours. I don't feel it yet, but this is what my partner notices this kind of makes sense to me intuitively based upon the way I feel during the day. So these things can be extremely valuable in that direction. The person who doesn't think they sleep that much, this is allowing them to understand better the amount of sleep they're getting. And again, it says you slept seven hours. Maybe had you been in the sleep center, you slept six. It's not 15 minutes though. Sure, these things can miss. But generally, they're missing by like 30 minutes. Gosh, back, you know, these actigraphy devices that we were using in research really led to the first generation of sleep trackers. Do you remember the first Fitbit, the Jawbone? There was the Misfit, I believe. I mean, there was a bunch of these things that came out around 2011. And I, if you look, I don't remember when I did, I should have looked it up, but if you look up, on um, Huffington Post, I did an article where I wore a whole bunch of different trackers. I wore a Fitbit, a Jawbone. There was a phone-based app. I uh, taped to my wrist. I think I wore the Philips Research Actigraph and a basis band, I think were the ones that I used. And then I wore them around. One day I counted my steps, literally every step I took to see how accurate they were. They were incredibly accurate. And then I put myself through a sleep st study at my own sleep center to look and see how does that data stack up with the data from this first generation, mainly accelerometer. They're just measuring movement sleep trackers. It was pretty good. I mean, it wasn't terrible. 
So we have to be very careful with these devices. Now we're that you know these these newer generation devices, they're going to get generally the amount of sleep you're getting pretty accurately, accurately enough to help the people who don't think they sleep. I think they're also helpful in a different direction. So in my case, we're out at a, some sort of you know get together, and and you come up and say, "Oh, Chris, hey, I, and I listen to your podcast, really, really, really enjoy it." I'm like, "Thanks." You know, what kind of music do I listen to? We have a conversation. And like, Chris, how much sleep you've been getting lately? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm getting about seven hours a night now. If I'm by myself, you're going to be like, "Oh, he gets seven hours of sleep. He's a sleep expert." It probably makes about that makes sense based upon what he talks about in sleep podcast. If my wife's around, she's going to give you a look like, "Don't listen to him." And if you said, well, you know, it seems like your partner here doesn't agree with your, the amount of sleep you're getting. I'm like, well, I, I don't know. Let's take a look at my app. And we pull up my app and it says five hours and 40 minutes. So I think there's a population of people out there, maybe like me, who need these devices for a little bit of a reality check. Because in my mind, I am getting seven hours of sleep every night that Monday, that ex that exceptional night when my flight was late and that other night that was exceptional because I had so many sleep studies I needed to read before the clinic started the next day. Oh, and that other thing was exceptional because I was trying to get a vintage 1950s sort of mid-century modern fireplace, the corrosion taken off of it and repainted like, and I spent too much time late into the night doing that. Like I always think of those things as exceptions, but now the sleep tracker becomes the truth teller. No, no, no. Your exception is now your reality. So I'm not the person who thinks they're getting too little sleep. I'm actually overestimating my sleep. And now the sleep tracker is telling you, Chris, you need to get this number definitely above six hours, if not closer to seven. And so I think for a lot of people, these things can be a little bit of a reality check. Like, wow, you know, I've really kind of lost control of my schedule here a little bit. I'm going to really make an effort to get into bed a little bit earlier and move that average up a little bit and not keep shortchanging myself when it comes to sleep. So it can move people on either end of that spectrum towards the middle, which I think is awesome. And so as we move forward, so this was 2011, the consumer market exploded. I think by 2014, it constituted something like 25 million in sales by 2018, 125 million. Today, I think it's 2 billion. If you have different numbers on that, let me know. I'm certainly not an economist, but it's massive. The growth has been explosive. And I remember that sort of second generation of devices. One was Zio, which was a headband, which was actually sort of bridging that gap of getting actual brainwave activity. So it was this little band you put on your head. You'd wear it. And when you woke up on the device was a little hypnogram of, okay, you were in light sleep and you went into deep sleep and you had your first cycle of REM. It put it all out there for you was fascinating and really, really accurate. And they went and Zio went bankrupt in 2013, even though a study I think showed it to be about 80% accurate compared to a sleep study, which was really outstanding. So this little one channel EEG device, which I have it. Um, in my office. I've got a whole, I'm, I'm going to start a museum. There's actually a museum of sleep in Richmond, Virginia. And I need to talk to them because I think the very, one of their first big installations needs to be the history of failed sleep technology. And so shout out to the museum of sleep, follow them on Instagram. Give me a, give me a call when you're ready to curate 
that exhibit and we'll put it together. Um, it'd be a lot of fun, but I've got the ZO. The other piece of device, the device I had, which I thought was a sure, surefire hit was the basis band. And the basis band came out and not only measured movement, but it also measured heart rate, skin conduction, and temperature. So now we've got four different variables. We have four blind men feeling the elephant. And I actually wore that device during that sleep study article I was writing for Huffington Post when I put myself through the polysomnogram. It, it did a great job. I think in the article, I showed a picture of my polysomnogram and a picture from the basis band. It was a perfect no, but wow, it matched up pretty nicely. Now they came out with the basis peak, which had this very, very uh, small problem of occasionally the device overheated, like 0.02% uh, overheated. And before you knew it, they went under in 2016. So why are these devices having trouble? What are the problems with them? I think when you look at basis and you look at Zio, one of the biggest problems we have right now with consumer tech is a translational one. And that is, it's giving you data. And let's assume it's awesome data. The data often doesn't allow the individual to know what to do with it. There is no interpretation, or at least that was always been sort of the Achilles heel, meaning I've developed the consumer grade MRI. It's the size of a, a way bag, and it takes pictures of your insides at a level that matches an MRI of about five years ago, which means pretty good. And there is a huge rush to buy these things for fitness conscious people, biohackers. Everybody has to have their winter MRI, personal win their their personal winter MRI, home MRI. And I'm going to tell you that the company is going to go bankrupt, not because of the MRI technology, not because it's taking amazing pictures of the head of your pancreas, but because nobody knows what to do with it. You've got this amazing picture of your femur or your spleen. And you're like, okay, great. What do I do with this? And that was a big problem with early generation sleep trackers. Here's your deep sleep score. Here is your arousals during the night. Here's your wakefulness after sleep onset. We're not going to tell you what it means. We're not going to tell you how to interpret it. And most importantly, we're not going to tell you what to do with it how to make it better, how to improve it if it's bad. We're just going to give you information and, and move on with our lives. And it's amazing how many people bought this technology and came to our clinics and said, I've been struggling with my sleep for 10 years. Oh, really? What, you know, what kinds of things have you done? Well, I bought this device. How did that work? It didn't do anything. What did you think was going to happen? They have no idea. They just bought it. What a great, what a great consumer field to be in a field where people are just buying it in the hopes that if they take it out of the box and charge it and put it on their wrist, something will happen. Like they don't even know what to expect from it. When I buy a car, I know what to expect. It should allow me to get to point A from point A to point B. Like that's what I expect. Maybe play some music. Maybe have some space in the back to put some stuff. That's my expectation. It's almost like people have no expectation. Like just it's going to help me with my sleep. I don't know how, but it, it will. 
And the more expensive it is, I'm guessing the more it will help. So I think the big problem with the sleep tech industry has been helping guide people with the information. And that becomes problematic when you're not a medical device, right? can't these are not this is not diagnostic equipment even though we were talking i think in our last episode where somebody said hey you did your holiday gift guide why did you that was episode 74 why didn't you talk about pulse oximeters because a pulse oximeter for me saved my life it let me know that my pulse oximetry was going down too low i brought this up with my doctor we did a real sleep study diagnosed with sleep apnea boom i got a cpap saved my life so but these devices can't be marketed as that and these things are often extremely sensitive. They'll pick up on all kinds of things, but they're not particularly specific, meaning we don't know even if you're asleep or not. So, you know, certain tests you want to be quite sensitive. And then you can do secondary tests to kind of narrow the thing, you know, narrow things down. Like in terms of specificity, this is where these things really kind of fall apart. So what are some other problems with wearable tech? There's really no incentive for these companies to prove anything with dedicated scientific testing. Now, some do. And I was reading you some studies about Fitbit. I know Withings have done some studies. And if, I'm gonna, I forgot to mention this at the top of the show. What device do you wear? I wear a Withings watch. I'm showing it on the YouTube channel right now. It's the, the Scan the Horizon. It's their sort of top of the line watch. They have been sort of a proponent of Withings for a period of time now. I've always liked their devices. I always think they come at things from a really research-driven, consumer-driven uh, point of view. I was given this watch, but if I weren't, or if this watch broke and I bought another one, I would still like the Withings device. They also have a device that goes underneath your mattress. So it's working together at the same time. The watch is recording information. The device under my bed is recording information. So that's what I use. Is it the best device? Is it the most accurate device? I don't really want to get into that in this show. I think Whoop does a really good job. A lot of the athletes I work with use Whoop bands. I do have an Aura ring and find it to be really useful as well too, especially if you're somebody who doesn't like to wear devices or feel them on your body when you sleep. You know, having something in a ring works really well. Um, but you know, these these companies are not bound by any sort of regulations to do this kind of research. So it becomes like a drug company who's got a, a generic drug. Why are we investing lots of money in research on this condition when it's already a generic drug? We'll never make that money back. So I think when you look at devices that you're interested in, you can pull up information to see what kinds of studies, if any, have ever been done to validate this information. And for some of these... <laughs> For some of these devices, you know, accuracy ratings can range anywhere from 20 to 80%. If something's 20% accurate, that's not particularly good. You know, that that's that's a SAT test where you've got A, B, C, D, and E to fill in. And you've done your entire SAT or MCAT or whatever your test is and filled in only A's. That's 20% accurate right there. You'll get a 20% give or take on that test. And all you did was fill in an A. So that's a very, very low bar of accuracy. Um, I think that the next thing is it's a crowded market. There's a lot of these devices. So the unfortunate thing is for the devices that do really take scientific rigor seriously, 
it's almost being blocked out by the millions of Facebook and Instagram and Twitter messages and all the stuff we're getting thrown out by, okay, I like this product. This is my sleep tracker. It's amazing. It does amazing things. It's changed my life. Okay, great. It's hard for the average consumer to really discern those types of things. And the last thing is these devices are just limited in terms of what they do. And I wish these individuals would just come out and say it. That was sort of the U2 lyric. Some people have way too much confidence. That was the, that's the, 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 I've worked for some of these companies before as a a consultant. I've been an expert witness when they get sued by a person who's like, look, I felt misled because they said these things were accurate and it wasn't accurate. And one of the things I often tell people is don't, you don't need to be that confident with these things. These things give you a general look at your sleep. You don't have to oversell these types of things to people. So I think that, you know, can these devices give us a limited window into how much we're sleeping? Can it kind of show us certain trends? I mean, if you and your partner both have the same fitness tracker and you always score a 90 and your partner always scores a 30, it might be something to talk to a doctor about. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, we're not using it as a diagnostic entity, but if you're like, wow, my pulse ox never goes below 96 and yours is always dipping into the 70s, it might be because your partner rolls onto their arm and cuts off circulation. I mean, it could be something as simple as that, or just the device is not accurate, or maybe it is picking up something because it is sensitive. It's just not specific to what's going on. So I think these things do have value. I think we need to find a place that is positioned between the companies telling us they're the best things in the world and super accurate and lots of confidence, and maybe the more research-oriented sleep doctors who are saying these things are terrible and worthless and not worth your time. I, I think there's a reality in between there. Because again, the sleep researcher is saying, you're missing the amount of deep sleep by 30 minutes. That's unacceptable in my world. But maybe to a lay person, that 30-minute error bar doesn't really matter. They just kind of want to know if they're getting some and how does their deep sleep measurement now compared to the way it was six months ago when they were drinking more heavily. Like, I think that we can find a middle ground and understand, and everybody understand these things are going to get much better as time goes on. So really interested to hear what you think about sleep tracking, what you use, what you found. Do they make you better informed about your decisions related to sleep or do they make you super anxious and nervous about your sleep and create that orthostat, orthos, orthosomnia that we talked about early on in the episode on trendy sleep topics? Let me know. DR Chris Winter Twitter, DR Chris Winter Instagram, DR Chris Winter TikTok. Find us on the YouTube Sleep Unplugged page. Visit the Spotify playlist we'll put on Heart of Glass by Blondie and absolutely the Heart of Glass version by Molly Cyrus that the members of Blondie all said Miley absolutely got the song right. They all loved her version of it, which was outstanding. And um, we will talk later uh, next week about another sleep topic. Remember, we got the Sleep Unplugged year-end awards coming up. I'll announce the nominations Uh, people in the running for those awards coming up soon. And until we talk again, sleep well.